The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2015, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon was from Saturday, June 6th. Pairing craft beer with American food, the growth years. Presented by Jonathan A. Zierfoss, Culinary Institute of America, and Steve Grossman, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good evening and welcome to Sabre. Just to make sure everyone's in the right place, this is the room for pairing beer with American food, the growth years. My name's Steve Broad. I'm the brewmaster for Free State Brewing Company in Lawrence, Kansas, and I'll be your host and introducer for this evening's salon. Sabre now in its eighth year and well-established as one of America's premier beer and food events is brought to you by the Brewers Association, the national nonprofit trade association representing the country's small independent craft brewers. I serve on the board of directors of the Brewers Association and also as chair of the events committee, which assists in the production of Sabre and of the Great American Beer Festival, another of America's premier beer events coming up in late September in Denver, Colorado. The Brewers Association also publishes craftbeer.com, which is your best source for information about these events and about the wider world of craft beer. As we move through the evening, please wait to enjoy each beer until it's introduced by our speakers, although I know they're ready for you to start this first one, I think, about as soon as you have it. We will be sampling in, the, uh, in, in your tasting glasses throughout the evening, but on your way out, we have some glassware from one of our sponsors, Spiegelau, on the back table, and please feel free to grab one of those on your way out. If you miss something that one of our speakers says tonight, all of our Saver salons are being recorded for podcast listening by craftbeerradio.com, giving you the opportunity to hear it all again. If you have questions for our speakers as we go along, please try to use the, put your hand up, I'll bring a microphone around uh, so that we get both your question and their answers recorded. Beer has long been, has once more become recognized as having a seat in the dining room. Whether a quick refreshing pills with an impromptu picnic on a hot summer day or a more substantial multi-course meal at home or in a fine restaurant. Our speakers this evening will discuss a period of phenomenal growth in beer and food in America. And who better to speak to this than Steve Grossman with Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, one of America's oldest and most respected craft breweries, who will start us off with a little bit of history. And Jonathan Zierfoss, Professor of Culinary Arts and Science at the Culinary Institute of America, the other CIA, and one of the premier culinary institutions in the country, if not the world. Please welcome our speakers. Thank you. So, um, please start drinking beer. I, I think I sound better the more you drink. So, um, I prepared a little slideshow, but unfortunately we didn't have much of the proper equipment to show it, so those of you who are on this side can maybe see it a little bit. It's on that wall, and I will explain uh, the slides as we go along. So we had a great tradition of brewing in this country uh, up until the uh, early 1900s. So we had 3,200 breweries, 
from 1600 to 1919 in the United States. Great tradition, making some good beer. I don't know exactly the styles. I wasn't drinking them back then. But um, I pr presumably most of them were lagers because we had a lot of German immigrants come in, and they were the ones who really started brewing in the United States. So 1600 to 1900, great, great tradition. 3,200 breweries. Whoops. After Prohibition... So we have prohibition from 30, from 19, wait a second, wrong slide. <laughs> and so prohibition ended, and then 1933 after prohibition ended, we only had 42 breweries start up again. What a, just the, the whole industry was decimated. Uh, really tragic, actually, what happened. And it obviously, it wasn't just the beer industry, the wine, the wine industry, and the other alcohol industries. But I think the wineries got by a little bit better because they were able to use their get by saying it was for religious purposes because they had a lot of wine in, in uh, traditional ceremonies. But uh, the brewing industry, we didn't have that luxury. And uh, we were down to 42 breweries for many, many, many years. So we started... Sierra Nevada started in 1980, and these are the small breweries. You can't see very many of them on that board now, but these are the small breweries that we had in 1980. Um, some you might recognize, Anchor was around. So a little bit of history, Fritz Maytag bought Anchor Brewing Company in 65. Fritz was a, um, a graduate, a grad student of um, Stanford. He was hanging out in San Francisco, one of his haunts, and there was a brewer, beer that he used to drink quite a bit, Anchor Steam. It was sort of going downhill. They were going to close the brewery, and Fritz said, I can't let this brewery close. I have to buy it. And, and Maytag family had a little bit of money maybe to work with, so <laughs> I'm not sure how much he relied on the family business, but he was able to scrape together some money. Bought Anchor Brewing Company in 1965. Now... Anchor was really in decline. Uh, the brewery needed a lot of work. The beer was starting to go downhill. So Fritz was able to get some more money in 1973 and start putting it back into the brewery and refurbishing uh, the brewery. And actually, um, really bringing Anchor to a premier brewery in the United States. I mean, remember the breweries out there, there were 42. And most of them were mega, mega breweries or regional breweries making sort of average lager, so not very exciting beers. But So Fritz started making steam beer again, then Anchor Porter, then Liberty Ale, beers that were actually really interesting to drink and sort of beers that inspired us to start our own brewery. So with some help um, talking to Fritz, my brother actually cobbled together some old dairy equipment. We started Sierra Nevada in 1980. Now, there was another craft brewery that started a little bit before us. It's on that list, New Albion, and started by Jack McCulloch from Northern California. So all these breweries are in Northern California. And it started by Jack, um, and he made some really good beer. He made some okay beer. He didn't stay in business very long, but actually another inspiration for us when we started. So this is the total list of breweries. I know you can't see that, unfortunately. <laughs> but there are 43 breweries on that list. And Anheuser-Busch is number one on there. Uh, I think it's uh, Miller's number two. Probably Coors is number three. So the big guys are still there. And those are the barrelage numbers. Um, Sierra Nevada's down there in number 
I can't even see. But we're down there out of the 42, we're probably 30, 35, are we? Okay, thanks. We're 35. He has better eyes than I do, or maybe he's closer. I don't know. So, um, so there was um, starting to get some interest in, we didn't call it craft back then, but microbreweries. So there was some interest in microbreweries. Some uh, people were getting into it. We were, you know, early on, there was another brewery called Boulder that started about the same time we did. Another one in Sacramento near us um, called River City didn't last very long as well. So a lot of these were very, very small breweries. There's one on there called actually Thousand Oaks, which was in San Francisco in a guy's basement. And I think the barrelage on there is like 50 barrels or something is what he made. Uh, we made 800 our first year, about 1,500 the second year, and I don't know, 2,000 the third year. So the industry was starting to wake up. This is, you can see, maybe see this chart, but this is brew pubs and microbreweries in the United States. And the first number on there is like uh, 1980. There was really two or three microbreweries. We started ramping up in actually about 87, 88, 89, then 1990, things started, started going up quite a bit. So beer became, you know, a prominent beverage, not just a, a beer to have uh, after you've been outside, but beer really started taking shape as uh, a very interesting beverage, one that had some complexity. So this is about the same time that uh, people started thinking, you know, beer goes pretty well with food. It's actually more versatile than wine. We also had a revolution in the mid-70s with wine, and so Wine and uh, food dinners started becoming really prevalent. Uh, California became on the map after the tasting in Paris. And people started drinking wine and thinking of it as a, as a great beverage. Beer followed a little bit behind. And um, so beer started getting elevated to that level. And um, people started pairing it with food. And this is where we started doing some beer dinners. And if I think we can talk about some of the early beer dinners that uh, you did. And was one of, he was one of the pioneers in actually developing uh, food uh, pairings with beer. So one of the reasons we didn't give you any food to begin with, and we do have a, a food to go with this particular beer, because I just wanted to talk about a, a little bit about principles of actually how you should proceed tasting-wise. So when you have any beverage, but beer is the subject today, you want to taste the beer first and make sure you really understand the attributes of the beer before you taste the food. And then you want to taste the food, and then really at some point you want to have both the beer and the food in your mouth at the same time. Um, and I just also, you know, it's great to be able to say this, this dish is going to go exactly with this beer. Um, and, you know, you, you can sometimes do that, and sometimes you're wrong. Um, I would suggest that you save a little bit of each plate of food for the next beer so you can do a little cross-tasting and see how the other beers work with those foods because you may discover, or we may discover, wow, that was really not what we expected, but it really worked quite well. And frankly, you can learn a lot from a, from a bad pairing also, um, right, what not to do. So uh, I think we can actually start bringing out the first plate. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about history also. Mm -hmm. Uh, my name's Zierfoss. If I don't know how many of you kn know German, but the original spelling was F A S Set, 
which means kegs of beer in German. And um, my, my ancestors were probably part of that original 3300. I have ancestors that kept taverns in Pennsylvania in the 17th and 18th century. Um, so uh, w- my history, family history goes a, a little ways back and uh, helped to explain to my family of lawyers why I'm in the business I'm in rather than having gone to, having gone to law school. So um, the first plate that you're going to get is actually pickled vegetables. And one of the reasons I like to do pickles, one is, you know, pickles whet the appetite, so that's a, a good idea to start with. And don't taste them until I tell you what they are because you want to be forewarned, so to speak. Um, and uh, one of the things I really like to do with beer and food pairing is serve stuff that doesn't work well with wine. And pickles don't work well with wine. And um, this particular pickles that you have today, one is a, a pickled ramp. Everybody knows what that is, a wild leek. We just got through uh, the ramp season, so I was able to scarf some up and get them pickled before the very short season disappeared. Um, that's a very intense flavor, right? Garlicky. Uh, it's a wild leek, but it's really more of a garlicky flavor. Um, there's also a piece of jalapeno on there. So if you're sort of adverse to uh, spicy foods, you want to be gentle with that one. Um, and then uh, a pickled artichoke. And in particular, I want to talk about the jalapeno and the artichoke. Uh, wine, you know, typically is like 13 to 15% alcohol. And uh, capsaicin, the, the, what causes the heat in uh, chili peppers, is exacerbated by the presence of alcohol. So if you were to drink a big wine, big high-alcohol wine with uh, a, a chili, you're going to get m- more burn, right? So not necessarily ideal, whereas uh, somewhat lower alcohol beer should be a little bit more refreshing. The other thing is um, with artichokes, it has two things, what, collagenic acid and um, Chinarin, particularly chinarin, is the uh, the chemical of most interest because it makes other things taste sweet. Uh, it actually subdues some of your taste buds, and and so you uh, foods have it, you, you, it. It brings out the sweet characteristics from other foods. That's not good with wine either, but it actually. Uh, in my opinion, works pretty well with uh, beer, particularly because of the bittering elements in beer. That that, that sweetness and the bitter from the beer tends to be a pretty um, uh, pretty symbiotic relationship. So that that said, you know you you can feel free to go ahead and nibble those, and then I think Steve's going to talk about yeah. the, the beer. I also see a theme here uh, with Jonathan because. We come from a family of lawyers, too, so I don't know how it relates to being in the beer or food business to have a family of lawyers. Maybe we decide we certainly don't want to go in the law field. I don't know, and the beers could be totally opposite, so I'm not, I'm not sure. But anyway, so the beer that we're having is, is a Kolsch. Kolsch is a, a German style. It's actually, most German beers are bottom fermented with lager yeast. Kolsch is sort of unique in that it's top fermented. It's actually a German ale, but still very, very light. We had one of our brewers who actually ran our pilot system, an R&D system that got schooling in Germany, and he became very proficient in um, brewing German styles, particularly Kolsch. So he came up with a recipe a few years ago for a Kolsch, and we produce it sporadically once every year, once every two years. His recipe actually won a gold medal two years in a row. Well, not two years. It's every other year they hold it, but two years at the World Beer Cup. 
and it was a really good kolsch. This is a kolsch that we just released and we tweaked the recipe a bit. It's 5% uh, alcohol and we use uh, traditional German hops called Strisselspalt, but in this version we spice it up a little bit with uh, a West Coast hop called Simcoe. So it's a West Coast take on, on a Kolsch. And uh, just released 5% alcohol, I think I said, and I'm really curious to see how this tastes with uh, the pickled vegetables. Uh, as Jonathan was saying, wine has a very difficult time pairing with certain foods. Beer is much more versatile. We did a beer versus wine dinner at our brewery a couple years ago, and it was very, very telling. We had a, a Napa Valley winery, very well-respected well winery, great wines, actually. And we sort of had a face-off, and uh, a beer and a wine paired with each course, six courses. And I must say, the beer won four out of the six courses. I actually gave one one course to uh, the wine. They had a great Cabernet, and we had uh, a filet with both Cabernet sauce and with uh, porter sauce. Then the, the, the cab actually paired better with that, but it's the salad, the beer one, dessert beer one, uh, the seafood course, the beer one. So beers really, you know, become elevated in the eyes of uh, people who, who uh, know how to eat and, and like to pair uh, alcoholic beverages with their food. And that's sort of the inspiration that the Brewers Association came up with with this Savor um, uh, event. I believe it was seven years ago. And, you know, the Brewers Association wanted to show people how well beer does pair with food. So we have all the beers out here and all the various foods that, that, that go with them. It's really, really a good pairing. And so they sort of wanted to elevate it and... Um, I dressed up for the occasion today. This is not, this is not normal brewer's attire, actually, you might notice. Uh, but I, I do get amazed. Every time I go to some of the traditional breweries in England, the brewers are wearing ties. So I don't know how they do that. But very traditional, they're wearing ties and, and smocks. So it's a sort of a strange thing from our brewers who are shorts and beards and, uh, and T-shirts and uh, totally, totally different uh, atmosphere. But anyway... Normally we don't wear wear this these clothes. I didn't even know there were ties on the West Coast. Mm. <laughs> Not too many, actually. So, so you all we probably should have forewarned you. You all were very polite and and taking your time with that first beer, but you uh, and we gave you a fairly generous pour because we knew we were going to hold off on the food. So, but uh, as you've now figured out, in order to get the second beer, you have to drink the first beer, and um, I that's. You know, I do a lot of tastings with college students, so that may be the first time I've ever had to tell people to drink faster. It's, so that, that's pretty good. So. We, also, we also want to caution you, you're probably going to drink a lot of beer tonight, so don't feel obligated to finish everything in the glass. We have dump buckets in front of you. So, you know, we, we don't encourage overconsumption. We just want to make sure everyone, you know, has, has enough to uh, go with the food. And there are quite a few, uh, quite a few beers and pairings out there that uh, the, the Saver crew has worked very hard on putting together, and I know you're going to want to try all of them. So um, you got to leave, you got to leave a little bit of room. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not even sure I'm prepared after last night. I'm not even sure I'm prepared to try that, all of them again tonight. But uh, some of them were so good, I'm going to go to those particular spots. So. Um, 
I went kind of old school with my materials, uh, actual paper, and so you could uh, look through some of those menus at your leisure at another time. But um, we, and Steve, Steve made this point, but in the, in the 90s, um, when we started doing these, these beer dinners, and I noticed that Sierra Nevada was on a couple of the first ones we had, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the earliest menus, and um, we were kind of received, uh, I, I'm from a very, it, the Culinary Institute is a very traditional world, and um, so it's kind of like you serve wine with fine food. So we felt a little bit like we were, we were fighting the, that, that traditional uh, belief system in terms of doing these events. And um, we were even told at one point that you know, we sort of needed to slow down. We, were, we, were, we had to wait for the rest of society to catch up with what we were trying to do with beer and food. But um, one of the other things about the Culinary Institute is we're, we're pretty well known. And... Um, so we were able to attract some, uh, as you will notice when you look at those menus, some, some pretty notable people, some, uh, some smaller local but notable, such as Bill Newman and um, Nat Collins, who were from our area. And then um, we did several dinners with uh, Fritz Maytag. We did several dinners with Michael Jackson. Everybody remember the beer hunter, not the, not the one glove. <laughs> um, and... Interestingly, Michael, on two separate occasions, I don't know if anybody remembered him, but he kind of had his glasses were always kind of like this, right? Mm-hmm. And he came up to me twice and said, this is absolutely the best pairing of beer and food that I've had. And for Michael Jackson to say that to you is like, you know, be still my, uh, be still my beating heart. It was really so. And um, we have, there's a menu in there from... Uh, Charlie Papazian, who of course is the head of the organization that puts this on. Um, so we were able to get these really significant uh, players to the school to uh, help to educate our community. The other interesting thing is we had these whole series every winter of different themed events, primarily wine and food events. But and you know, statistics are kind of important when you're analyzing the success of things. The beer events always sold out, always. The other events did not always sell out. So, if, you know, when you're keeping track of sales in a restaurant, you're like, wow, the, the, this is a pretty good idea. But again, in, in that, during that period, in the uh, early, mid-90s into the 2000s, there was... Uh, some resistance to the idea of beer with with uh, with fine food. So, okay, you have the second dish now, and your second beer. So, this is uh, based on a an old uh, German dish called Geruftis, and the recipe is actually included in in your in your package. And um, one of the one of the other approaches I like to take uh, with beer and food pairing is to take sort of a traditional food. And uh, modernize it by using, uh, for example, uh, Point Reyes uh, blue cheese is in this. So it's, you know, from uh, California cheese, so the same area as the beer. It's also uh, contains, I'm not sure if it's the porter or stout from, uh, do you know which one they used to actually make I think you used the porter. Did not. I think you used porter, Oh, did porter. So it's porter. You could use porter or stout, but... basically it's if i could have i for me personally if i could have one I snack have to go with beer like i think this is the one that i would choose um and so uh you're going to talk about the scotch ale mm-hmm. so 
Scotch Ale is, a, is another beer we make very sporadically. And a Scotch Ale is a style that, you know, although Sierra Nevada is known for liking hops, we try to stay fairly true to, to style. Scotch Ales are traditionally very, very malty and not very hoppy. And uh, just a style that really is mouth-filling, rich, um, a uh, little bit on the on the sweet side from all the malt, and uh, a little bit higher alcohol in the mid sixes, and uh, uh, just a really good beer. And we just, we happened to make it this year. We hadn't made it probably for four or five years, and and we were talking with Jonathan, and he thought it would be a great beer to go. He you know realizes that hoppy beers not don't always pair best with certain foods, so the malty beers really are, are much more versatile. Want to yeah, speak that's, on that. that's, uh, that's really yummy. Mm-hmm. So you'll notice another pickle on that one, too, but that's just because I can't. I'm kind of a, a, a real fan of pickles. Um, and again, oh, so here's an interesting thing in terms of making pickles, and you'll, you'll notice again when you look through those menus, um, you know, you can make pickles with a variety of vinegars. I like to use malt vinegar. For, for the obvious reason, because it connects to the to the beer theme, and it's it's a fairly neutral vinegar flavor, but it's it's specific, and to me, it connects better to the to the uh, to the beer idea. Um, and the other another important thing I think to this dish and and the success of this particular pairing is that that pumpernickel bread, that uh, that that actually for me is what really connects to that that. Uh, uh, multi the mm-hmm. maltiness of the of the Scotch ale. Is that people feeling that? Oh my gosh. Comments, questions That's so great. far? Yes. Um, I've tried to incorporate beer and make it salad dressings and it has not been a good experience. Do you have any suggestions? Lambic. Or uh, actually, one of the things I noticed yesterday that we seem to be moving from the IPA era into the sour ale era um, is what I noticed from the tastings here. And I think sour ale would actually work quite well in a, in a salad dressing. Um, I would probably cook it just a little bit. You could try that, but the, whenever you're cooking with beer, you have to be very careful because um, the, the qualities, the, again, particularly like bitterness and so forth, uh, become really exaggerated if you cook for any length of time. I actually tend to, if I was doing something like a braise, I would probably cook with a, a fairly neutral beer in the first steps of it, and then add whatever beer that I'm pairing to make what we call a bridge um, at the end of the cooking process so that it had very little uh, change to the beer's flavor qualities and you're really capturing the essence of that beer. But so the sour the sour ale, I think, might work real well for salad dressing. Yeah, and I agree with Jonathan. You need to be very careful when you use IPAs to cook with because the hops become accentuated and you end up with something that's, that's really, really bitter. So um, porters tend to do well. Stouts are great. Um, uh, stout stew is fantastic. And um, uh, beer is really versatile to cook with, but you just need to pick the right beers. And sours seem to be very popular at events like this, but IPAs are still the number one craft category by far. Um, sours, people talk about it. They're the, they're the new thing. Um, everyone loves sours. 
Uh, well, I don't, but everyone else loves sours. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, they're really, they're really exciting. But if you look at the sales, people tend to taste sours, and I think they drink IPAs by far more. Number one, number one style. Uh, by far, it's still growing. Not just, it's interesting, not just the United States. I travel a lot for our brewery and uh, speak to uh, groups in other countries. IPAs are the number one beer in pretty much every other country that's getting into craft beer as well. I actually feel kind of guilty because I asked my local beer distributor to get some sour ales. And um, they're, they're quite expensive, too. And, and uh, now I feel like I have to buy it because it sits on a shelf. And I, I, see, I, I, thought, I thought there would be other people who might uh, potentially uh, buy it. But, um, so now I, I do drink some sour ale mm-hmm. just out of a sense of, sense of responsibility. No, they're not the easiest. To, they're not the easiest to make, actually. Um, they people just have fallen in love with hops. It's the way it is. I mean, we started. So we made our pale ale in 1980. It was one of the hoppiest beers available, and it's 38 IBUs. IBU inter, standing for International Bittering Unit. It's sort of a measurement of uh, how much hop oil is in the or alpha acids are in the beer, and that was a really hoppy beer. People's tastes have now become acclimated that our 38 IBU pale ale tastes very, very mild on the hop scale. Because, you know, just like anything, when people started drinking wine, a lot of them started out with white Zinfandel, and then they graduate and they go to regular Zins, Cabernets, or whatever. They can't go back to what they started with. The same things happen with beer. People's palates get acclimated. I think the same thing happens with food. You start eating a lot of Thai food or spicy foods, it's hard going back to foods that are, are bland. So I think as people drink more beer, they become more accustomed to the different styles, your palate becomes more developed and wants the m- more flavor all the time. So I don't know if my palate's shot because I've been doing this so long, but I keep drinking hoppy beers too, so I, I love the IPAs. So this, this third uh, pairing that we have is, is really special in several, both because of the food, which is really special to what I do, and the beer, which is really special to what Steve does. So let me just first tell you about the, the sausage. It's a, it's a Tuscan-style fermented sausage. It's actually, it actually has some red wine in it. Um, it is by far the safest sausage in the world. So let me begin by saying that. We, I teach in the culinary science department, and we teach microbial ecology. And, you know, there's two ways to teach that. You teach fear of microbes, or you teach people about uh, how to control fermentation. And um, so we like that second route, how to control fermentation. So um, this sausage has to uh, ferment and get to a, a 5.3 uh, on a pH scale within 24 hours. And then we, and then we hang it and age it. And it has to get to a water activity level of uh, 0.85. Just to put that in a scale, water is one. So it's a pretty simple scale. And everything that's not pure water is somewhere between zero and one. So this usually starts out about 0.94, but we have to get it to 0.85. And then it's completely shelf-stable and doesn't even need to be refrigerated at that point. Um, what I like about this particular sauce is, is it's like just on the edge of feral and 
in my mind. It's just like really like uh, like that fat is really right there in your in your face. And um, how can you not love pork fat? You know that's. Uh, <laughs> So, and then the beer is also something that's really, really special. Okay, so we started out making ales in 1980 through uh, most of the 80s, and we were able to finally have enough success where we could maybe get a loan where we could buy a piece of property to build a proper brewery instead of one just cobbled together. And we did that in 1989, and we had some extra fermentation space, and we were able to produce lagers. When you produce ales, it takes about two weeks, and it doesn't tie up your fermenters very long. Lagers take eight weeks, sometimes ten weeks, and when you're a small brewery, you often don't have that space to do lagers. So we started doing lagers. We did some various lagers. So we started doing once a year in March, after the German tradition, a palebach. And once again, uh, not a very hoppy style, and uh, fairly strong lager. Uh, it's ranged anywhere over the years from 65 to 7%. This is right in that range. And uh, we made it for a few years. We bottled it. Very limited release. We started selling it in a couple other outlets outside of Chico. And the sales weren't all that brisk, but we loved the beer. Uh, we, it had a good following. But then we decided to move on to some other beers that time of the year and, and just play around. So we didn't make the Pale Bach for a few years. And we got the uh, nastiest letters that we discontinued someone's favorite beer and, you know, hundreds if not thousands of letters. And we would say, well, why didn't you buy it when we were selling it to you? So we, we started making it a little bit, selling it only in Chico. And then... We quit it again, and uh, more letters came. So we decided well, five years ago to start bringing it just for Chico again, and uh, people were, were very happy. And then this year we decided to, to have a little bit more uh, exposure with it and, and get it out a little bit more. So we're going to hopefully do bring it back on a regular basis now and have, I don't know if it's going to be a national release, but certainly a wider release than uh, we've had the last probably 10, 15 years. But really popular beer. It's a beer that we always like, but, you know, if we're tying up our tanks for that long, we hope it sells a little bit too. So um, if it doesn't, we just drink more. So I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, I think I haven't tried the pairing. It looks fascinating. And how is it? Yeah. So, so in terms of the pairing, you know, the, the traditional view, I mentioned it. bridging and some, some, other, um, some other approaches, but the, the, they used to talk about the three C's, cut, complement, contrast. Um, this is a good example of, of cut, but I think also contrast, because, again, you have this really rich, intensely flavored, fatty sausage, and then you have uh, a beer that's really clean and crisp, and has a fairly high alcohol content, which also then is also going to provide fat. some of that cut through the fat. And so, um, to me, it's... it's well, I like it. It's good. It's a good one, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, why don't... Um, so, you guys obviously seem to get along. Um, <laughs> we just met each other, but we get the along. Law firm, yeah, exactly. The, the law firm of Grossman and Zierfoss. That's right. We got, it, we got it going. That's right. So, do you know of any breweries that actually publish recipes on how to cook with their beer on the package of the six-pack so that this could be a continued trend I don't to increase the trend more? 
Well, I, I think a lot of breweries do feature food and beer pairings. We do on our website. Um, there are pamphlets that, that we publish for beer and food pairing. Many other breweries do the same. Uh, I don't know of any that have put it on the packaging, but that's a good idea. I'm going to take it to the marketing department next week. So, It is a good idea. It's a great idea. For a wife whose husband picks the beer based on what he likes to eat, it would help me when he comes home so we can have a nice evening at home. Oh. It's a great idea. So actually, I think you're in a minority because studies have shown that the wife picks the beer 60 to 70% of the time. And the husband drinks what the wife picks, but maybe the husband gives her instructions beforehand. I don't know. But uh-huh. Good. No, that's a great idea. I think we need space on the packaging. I don't know. Maybe we'll have to have bigger bottles or something so we can fit all the recipes on. Okay. Mm. It's, uh, it's pork. And um, it's a Tuscan-style fermented, not cooked sausage. Um, in addition to the pork, we, we actually do the pork and the fat separately and then mix them together. And um, it's the only other flavorings in there are uh, the red wine and black pepper. And then we use something called Bacto Firm, which is the, the, fer- the fermenting agent. And um, that's what gets the, f- the, the fermentation started and the lowering the pH. So the slight sourness that you get from that is, is from straight fermentation. And then aging. And what's interesting during the aging process, when, as I mentioned, you're, you're losing water, is the, f- the fat actually looks like it sort of grows inside the sausage because you put it in, it was sort of one size, and then because of the wa- it shrinks up a bit because of the water, but the fat becomes all that much more present, which is kind of what I like about it. That's what gives it that, that feral thing. And I mean, to us, I mean, it, was, it just makes so much sense to teach my, microbial ecology by producing stuff like that to, for the students. It's a, you know, and they really enjoy it. Other questions? We have a triple crown Who? Oh, yeah. Really? I was. Wow. I, I meant to mention, if anybody got that information, to please share it. All, All right. right. American Pharaoh. All right. That's great. Fantastic. And I, and I also wanted to mention that we really appreciate since that was that race was going on that you were all here and wanted to hear what we had to say. And uh, so I guess that means there's no horse meat in the next batch of sausage. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions for our speakers tonight? Later in the no, evening when one. they've we had a few more there. beers. We got one back there. No, our pale ale recipe has not changed, actually. Um, it's stayed the same. We still feature the Cascade hops. It's actually still bottle-conditioned. And um, uh, most of our beer, well, all the beers that we bottle-conditioned back then are still bottle-conditioned. We still refuse to pasteurize. Um, it's, it's basically the same recipe. The only thing that changed after the first year or so was that originally a pale ale, we couldn't afford a filter, we couldn't afford any way to clarify the beer other than just racking it off. So if someone had it in the refrigerator for a week at a really cold temperature, you would start to get a haze and then chunks would start coming out. And um, it didn't affect the flavor or anything, of course, but um, 
just the, the, the visibility wasn't the best. So when we had enough money after a year or so to buy a filter, we started doing a very, very light filtration just to get some of the proteins out. We got a lot of angry angry letters that we sold out because there weren't chunks in our beer. But, but it's still exactly the, exactly the same recipe. So I, I, I should mention this just in terms of the evolution and where we are uh, since we're all here at this event. And it's kind of unique in that it, this is really all about beer and food together, like where most, um, most beer festivals tend to be beer-focused and then there's some food to go along with it. Usually um, pretzels or yeah. something, yeah. And, um, I'm very creative. The, the executive chef for the, for the Brewers Association, Adam Dooley, who invited me to come and, and do this event, was my student in the American Bounty, and, and he graduated either 1997 or 98, and you will notice some menus in there from those years in that restaurant. So for me, it's, you know, it's really very exciting because it's something that I was so passionate about, you know, now 20 years ago, and to see sort of that next generation of, of chefs who have, and you you will see when you t- taste the pairings, he's responsible overseas the pairings for all of the, the that are, you're going to taste tonight, and um, so for me to see that and and see how that evolution has continued to pace is, is really pretty exciting. Uh, this event really speaks to that. I yeah, think. actually, I talked to Adam last night about uh, being a student of Jonathan, and he said he was one hell of a tough taskmaster, and I think that's what's, what you need to have in this, in this industry because it's a, it's a tough industry. And Adam learned well, and he's, he's a fantastic chef. He's actually been consulting with us now the last couple months for our menu at one of our breweries at our, at our main brewery in Chico. So Adam learned well. You taught, you taught him well because he's a fantastic, fantastic uh, chef. Very, very creative. Uh, so you were both here last night, and you said you had some favorites you were going back from tonight. Where, where are you? Uh, the, the one I told Adam, the single best was um, it's a brewery from Utah. It's you one of the to, main sponsors. You went to? Yeah. You went to brewery? Maybe. And um, uh, the beer is called Barefoot. I don't know, but that particular pairing to me was like was one that really, really yeah. stood out. And um, I don't want to tout it on too. I think it's I think it's duck actually is what it was with, and the bear. I can't remember the, the name of the beer is barefoot something. We sort of have a unique dish at for one of our dishes in that we raise our own cattle in conjunction with our local college, Chico State, and. Uh, fed on our spent grains so we buy that purchase the cattle they raise it in their animal husbandry department and finish it on our spent grain and then they actually have one of the few uh, butcher programs left in the United States and then we serve it in our restaurant well Adam talked to talked to us and we sent out 80 pounds of uh, steak to have with our, our hop hunter beer and I think it's a it's a great dish too and a great combination so it's unique I think uh, there's some Many of the dishes, there may be one or two breweries that have it, but uh, this is the only one that, you know, we're the only one that have this particular dish. So, so stop by and try that if you're so inclined as well. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, so when I talk to a lot of brewers and beverage directors and bar owners in my area, a lot of them say, like, that wow beer that made them go, oh, beer's there. Oh, now beer is amazing was the pale ale. Mm. Uh, what was your beer that made you go, wow, this is something different? And or I guess the of. question would apply to both so, of you. So 
as I mentioned earlier, probably Anchor beers. And then there was one other beer, too. I'm probably really dating myself, but there's a beer, beer called Ballantine's India Pale Ale yeah. produced in New York and aged in oak for eight months. It was a little tiny eight-ounce bottle. And our friend, my neighbors, my neighbor up the street who actually taught us how to homebrew, um, gave us some Ballantines earlier to start out. I mean, he, he really corrupted us like at 15 years old uh, with homebrew and then Ballantines India Pale Ale. And then actually he did the same thing with us with wine. So I don't know, we have to owe him something. But um, Ballantines was another one actually that really, really did it for me too. So Anchor certainly and, and, and New Albion, they were, they were um, you know, really on the forefront. Well, certainly the Anchor beers in general for me also, um, the, of the menus I gave you, the one event that I did with uh, one of the two with, with Fritz Maytag, I thought was between the menu and the beers was one of the ones that I was most proud of. Um, you know, it's amazing when the craft brew, or I guess we called them micro brews and then craft brews, because it was such a far. It was to me, it was like it just ha- it, it it really sort of happened all of a sudden. But it was the Sierra Nevadas and the and the anchors and those that were the original players that to me really changed the, the marketplace. Once once you once you had any of those, you know, after growing up on. Schaefer and uh, Schmitz and Ortliebs and um, Genesee Cream Ale. I'm from Philadelphia. He's an East Coast. You can tell, yeah. Um, all of a sudden, like, you know, to have this completely, it, it, they're not the same thing, you know. They're, and so the, the, just when the microbrews sort of hit the marketplace, the whole thing for me changed completely. So that was a really broad strokes, but I don't want to leave anybody out, you know. Hi. Um, so in, I know we've been talking about pale ales and stuff like that, but what about like stouts? What do you think is the is that works just just happens to just work well with with most stouts? I, I, I really like doing stouts with desserts and the hardest thing, um, the hardest thing with beer is probably desserts because you, you're sort of limited in the choices. But uh, stout cheesecake works real well and uh, a stout cheesecake with like a coffee sauce on it uh, works real well and then you know I've sort of played with that idea and put huckleberries and um, uh, hazelnuts and gone with stouts from the Pacific Northwest and sort of get into the whole uh, regional affinity approach um, uh, stout uh, stout float I'm sure some of you have had that but a nice stout with a scoop of chocolate and a scoop of vanilla ice cream in it is is awesome. like a really good yeah. uh, so I like to focus the stouts for desserts because I think desserts probably the most challenging um, yeah, concept in terms of creating a beer dinner event. And you can also follow the lead of the Irish and, and do it with oysters, and they make oyster stouts very popular. The well they'll put whole oysters in there, oyster shells, and they get that oyster flavor, so that brininess, and then it pairs really well with the oysters. So if you go to go to Ireland, you'll find a lot of the breweries serving oyster stouts, and it's really great. And, so. and I had always heard about Guinness and oysters, and until I went to Ireland and, and actually had Irish oysters with Guinness, um, I, I just didn't really get it. And um, the, the, the combination of sort of creaminess and minerality with the, the oysters and the brininess and minerality there, it's, it's a brilliant pairing. I think Great people pairing. would just be like, well, it's Ireland. They have oysters, they have stout. Of course, you're going to you know, have them together. But it's, it's a really sophisticated 
combination, and uh, yeah, that one sort of slipped my mind. That's mm -hmm. great. Okay. Anywhere else? And there is an oyster bar here. So. There is an oyster bar. It's fantastic, actually. Great oysters. Any other uh, questions for our speakers tonight? Please join me then in thanking them for uh, coming out. Thanks. Great presentation. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2015, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2015, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.